Great to be back with you, Hoffman Town Church, today. Mary and I missed being here last Sunday. Uh, most of you know or are aware that we went to my 50-year high school reunion, and uh, we were a little taken back. Uh, there was more old people there than I realized, and uh, so we fit right in, truth of the matter is, but uh, we enjoyed being there, and I'm able to preach at my home church, the First Baptist Church, 8, Oklahoma. And I know you were blessed by Mark Clifton, my friend, who was here, and preached last Sunday, and I had uh, lunch with Mark. Yeah, let's give a, a round of applause. He is, uh, he is certainly always a word from the Lord, and I'm able to have lunch with him this week, and uh, he was blessed by you as well, and I know he had a word in season, and uh, I pray that I do as well today, so if you'll find your Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, and while you're looking in the text, I want to say a quick word of appreciation to David Hopkins. What a wonderful worship leader we have at Hoffmantown Church. And uh, our God is worthy of our praise, and David is worthy of our appreciation. Amen. Thank you, David and Ruth. And uh, one of the great joys of being here is the, the chance we have to worship with you and engage in worshiping the Lord. And uh, I hope you don't uh, take that for granted. I hope we don't take anyone for granted. Truth of the matter is. But today I want to teach you a lesson I believe that God has for all of us on what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. And there is some expectations for us who are believers in the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is we're called to live a life of integrity. You know, as I thought about someone who personified and exemplified in their life, who is this person of integrity? What do they do? And uh, what, the, what do they look like? I immediately thought of Billy Graham. Of course, Billy Graham passed away, as you well know, at 99 years of age, just this past year. And uh, he had a life that really exemplified in the way he conducted himself and his ministry of what integrity looked like. But really, you trace the roots of his ministry, and you'll find that as he began in about 1946 to be an evangelist, uh, after being a president of a Bible college for a short period of time, he and his ministry team uh, met in a hotel room in Modesto, California, and they developed what was called the Modesto Manifesto. And there, George Beverly Shea, uh, Grady Wilson, and Cliff Barrows met, and they determined what will be the non-negotiables of this evangelistic ministry going forth. And they set forth these uh, expectations and these guidelines of moral uh, expectation for all of that team. And it was these things, honesty, accountability, sexual purity. And they went ahead to amplify a little bit that they uh, would not uh, have a, a meal with a lady other than their wife. They wouldn't ride in a car alone with another woman. And, and they, they, they stayed with those uh, expectations. And the last one was this, they had not be critical of any church. So they stayed with their commitments to these, uh, a life of integrity. And it's not surprising that some 57 times that Billy Graham would be identified as uh, one of the most admirable men in all of America. The reason was because he was a great preacher. Well, he was a great preacher. He was a great evangelist. But I'm telling you, the reason he was most admirable because he was a man of integrity. 
Now, maybe there was others along the way who could preach as well as him. Maybe there's some personalities who had as much charisma as he did. But the problem was their charisma took them to a place that their character couldn't keep them. But he continued on in faithfulness, living a life of integrity. Can I tell you, in a recent poll of church members across the country, the number one expectation that they have for their pastor would be that he would be a man of integrity. It was Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, he, he said the supreme quality for leadership is unquestionably integrity. Without it, no success is even possible. No matter whether it's in an office setting, the military, on a football field, and certainly not in church. And so while we can quickly identify the countless cases that we've all been made aware of of moral failures, we have to make it our resolve as believers in Jesus Christ not to be found as people who compromise. But let's develop a soundness of character and live a life of integrity. You know where it begins? It begins in your heart and my heart. That's the reason it says in Proverbs chapter 4, we're to guard our hearts with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life. Someone said the definition of integrity is who we are when no one else is looking and how true it is. You know, we live our lives really in three dimensions, don't we? There's our private life. We're the person that no one else sees but God himself it's our thoughts, our motives, our innermost self. It's the things that are tucked away in the recesses of our heart. That's our private life. But we have a personal life. And that, I mean, we live it really in our inner circle, those closest to us, our family, our friends, our closest colleagues. Only a few of people know us at this level of our personal life. And then, of course, it's our public life. That's who we are for the whole world to see. It's who we are when we come to church. It's who we are in a public setting, at social events, in the public arena, at sporting events, at our office, and on and on our life is on display. But I'm telling you today, when we talk about integrity, we're talking about what begins right here in our private life, our convictions, our struggles between us and God in the innermost part of our being. But soon it makes its way out, of course, first to our personal life, those closest to us. They see our faults. They see our flaws. They see our fears. But they should certainly know us by our virtue, by our honesty, by what's expected of a man and women of integrity. I know you're familiar, certainly as many engineers that we have here at Hoffmantown with the term structural integrity. It's an engineering term that meaning a building has been built properly, that the foundation, the piers of the structure, the things that are unseen are dependable, they're trustworthy, they're reliable, they're built up to standard, they will meet the expectations of the building codes, they will pass that inspections if they have structural integrity. Can I tell you that's the goal for the people of God, to pass the inspection of the omnipresent, omniscient God who knows us in our private life, He certainly knows us in our personal life, and he sees us today in our public life. God's word has plenty to say about the expectations of being people of integrity. And I'm going to read five verses today, but I want you to keep your Bible open because I'm going to be relating to some scriptures up in chapter 4 all the way to the text that we're going to use as our uh, uh, preaching text for today. So please stand in honor of reading God's word as we worship the Lord and standing in honor of his, of his word. Verse 1. 
begins by saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us. An offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication or sexual immorality or all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as fitting for saints, for believers in Jesus Christ. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, no sexually immoral person, unclean person, no covetous man, no idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Father, I pray today that you once again would drop your word in front of us as the plumb line so we can evaluate what we need to do and be. And I would pray, Lord, as I speak these words, that my own personal life would reflect what's expected for a man of God. Help me to live in integrity. Help me to be found faithful. I pray that for every man that's here today. Help us to be better. I pray for all the ladies that are here today as well. I pray that they would be honest and, and, and trustworthy. I pray that they would demonstrate it in the life that they've been called to live for you. So, Lord, collectively, I pray for this church. I pray that our word would be good. I pray that you'd help us to be found faithful in all these expectations that we consider today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you well know, this book of Ephesians is a prison epistle penned by the Apostle Paul, and he reveals to us that the grace of God has been poured out on our lives, even as uh, David read a little while ago from Ephesians 1, 7, how the grace of God and the, the atonement of Jesus Christ has been given for us. He tells us about this unmerited and undeserved salvation, and with this come some expectations. That's what he's talking about. First, we're to have a transformed life, and it is transformed from the inside out. He says we're expected to represent him rightfully. We're to carry out his agenda, his purpose in each of us. And that, of course, is expected to be seen in the integrity of our lives. For you and me to be men and women of integrity, can I tell you, it will begin under Roman numeral one, as you see, with our transformation. Because you see, much of the emphasis on the book of Ephesians is about the salvation that we've enjoyed by believing on Jesus Christ that has resulted in our own sanctification. Look at chapter 4, verse 24. That you now put on the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In the preceding verses, this radical transformation, he uses an illustration about taking off an old garment corrupt with deceitful desires and put on now a new garment, a new garment of righteousness and purity and godliness. So first he tells us under A of our past alienation. In verse 18, look at it. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their own heart. Listen, do you realize we were not born with a blank slate of moral neutrality? We were born morally flawed. What does it say in Psalms 51.5? In sin my mother did conceive me. Paul wrote in Romans 3, there's none of us righteous, no, not one. 
So from the back of this sanctuary to the pulpit that I'm preaching from today, every one of us were born with a sin-stained and sin-saturated heart with an insatiable appetite to be sinners. The problem is, as he said in the text, our spiritual eyes are blinded because Satan has blinded our eyes, but our hearts were hard. Just like Jesus talked about that hard soil in the, the parable of the sower. We have a bend that's corrupted. We, we call this in theological terms, we're people of total depravity, which doesn't mean we're as evil as we can possibly be, but it does mean we're all universally born, separated from God because of our sin, and we choose to sin because that's our nature. That is, unless God steps in our life and He awakens us to our problems and our plight, and then He, he, he will continue to, to work on us. And even though we continue in a downward spiral of selfish and sinful behavior and we'll continue on that path, he'll, he, he awakens us and our own sin has uh, alienated us and separated us from God. I love what Isaiah wrote in chapter 59. He says, the Lord's hand is not so short he cannot save. His ear so dull he cannot hear, but your sins have come between you and your God and now he will not hear you and he's hid his face from you. And then after this alienation, he comes with the good news to talk about our present salvation. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man corrupting his nature, his deceitful lust, and now be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man created according to God. And he, and he typifies it once again. He identifies it with these terms in righteousness and in holiness. So here Paul writes initially to the believers there in Asia Minor. He talks about these rich theological truths. And he speaks metaphorically about putting on the new coat, taking off the old garment. Uh, he's talking about our God wrought, our God bought salvation and this old man of ours is done away with because God's grace and our bend to disobey and our deceit and our dishonesty has been redeemed. And now we put on this new clothing. And then forevermore there should be marked differences in our life. But we, we have to be quick to understand. We don't suddenly get better. We don't live in righteousness because of what we can do. But it's an imputed righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he who knew no sin became sin for us now that we could become what? The righteousness of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I tell you, here's what happens in the life of every believer when we come into right relationship with God, we're changed in a couple of ways. One, in our relationship to God, we're changed positionally. From being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, from darkness to light, from sinner to saint, from being alienated from God, to be adopted into his family and transformed to live in newness of life. We're positionally changed. But can I tell you, it's got a practical side to it as well. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God coming to reside in our life. Notice it's the Holy Spirit to make us holy. And we're to be different. We're to think differently, we're to behave differently, we're to love differently, we're to give differently, and we're to forgive differently. And Paul reinforced it in Romans 12, and he said, don't be conformed to this world, but you've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove to do the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. 
That's the essence of the message today. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we're to live worthy of the, of the calling on our life. That's what he says. And now he says it's to be lived with integrity. Let me move quickly. That's our transformation. But with this transformation comes expectations. Under Roman number 2, we see God's expectations. Chapter 4 and 5, we read the planks that build a platform of what's expected for men and women of integrity who build their who will, God will build in them this Christ-like character. First, these expectations are in context of unacceptable behavior uh, for, for, for anyone. And he talks about dishonesty and anger and stealing and coarse and crass conversations. He mentions greed and impurity. But I want to focus on four major concerns that we find in this divine dialogue that must be dealt with if we're to be people of integrity. I'm telling you, this stuff is bottom shelf stuff, but listen to the word of God. First, we're to be people who are honest. There's an expectation of honesty. In chapter 4, we read verse 25, put away lying, speak the truth. Verse 28, do not steal. Chapter 5, he mentions twice about being greedy, lest we find ourselves in dishonesty and deceit. Listen, these things for you and I, we learned them early on. We learned these truths in Sunday School 101. We're teaching these truths to our kids today as toddlers. We learned them in kindergarten. You know what they are? Number one, honesty. We're to tell the truth. That's what it says. But I believe this telling the truth is more inclusive than simply a falsehood. Sometimes it's fabricating things for our own benefit. Sometimes it's the exaggeration of things to impress others. Sometimes it's embellishing things even to hurt someone else's reputation or to make yourself look better by belittling someone else or lying to defame their character. Listen, here's what the Ten Commandments say. We're to not to bear false witness against our neighbor because honesty and kindness is the antidote to this poisonous practice we're to tell the truth. And you know what he brings up secondly? We're to be stealing no more. Can I tell you, stealing is no small problem in the 21st century. Go back to the Ten Commandments. What did God say? Thou shalt not steal. Aren't we taught that in kindergarten? I, Johnny, don't take things that don't belong to you. And sometimes we forget. The number one place of stealing, the culprit, is found in the workplace. Stealing is more inclusive than one might think. Yes, it could be embezzlement. could be cooking the books. It could be cheating on your taxes. could be an expense report. All of these things are a black mark against the character of God's man and God's woman. A compromise of integrity and a betrayal of honesty. But can I tell you, stealing is bigger than taking an item that doesn't belong to you. It's the stealing of ideas of research. We call it plagiarism. I've known a couple of men that were fired from their church for preaching someone else's sermon. God's Word says we got to walk in integrity. And then he mentions greed. You know, greed's really synonymous with selfishness, isn't it? The greedy person never has enough. They're always wanting more money. They're wanting more power. And actually, in context, you know what he's talking about? They want more sex. Can I tell you, selfishness is all of our default position. 
And if you and I don't consciously and intentionally and consistently choose not to be greedy or selfish, we will be greedy people. We will be selfish people. But I'm telling you, to all of this propensity in our life, more's not better. More is not better. Better is better. And that's what God's Word is calling us to. First under A, it's honesty. And then he moves under the letter B to anger, verse 26. Actually, he quotes from Psalms 4.4, says, Be angry and do not sin. Obviously, he's talking about how to be angry and do not sin is relative to righteous indignation, directed evil, injustice, and ungodliness. But can I tell you quickly, that's usually not our problem, is it? We get mad all right. We get angry. It's because we don't get our way. (laughs) We, We get angry because our expectations weren't met. Our someone disappointed us, and we have no patience with those kind of people, and that's our problem. But can I tell you today, don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass yourself by getting angry with your family, with your co-workers, because it spoils your witness for God by your own volatility. I love what it says in Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than the one who can take a city. Here's what I say. When when your anger gets the best of you, it will always reveal the worst of you. Besides, when you're living full of God's Spirit, you'll be practicing that ninth fruit of the Spirit, and that is self-control. God, help us to be self-controlled. Help us to live in the Spirit. Third thing he talks about under C is speech. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That word corrupt in the Greek New Testament is an interesting word. It's it's that which is foul, that which is rotten. And and the word picture is spoiled fruit or, or putrid meat. In other words, don't you let your mouth have a putridness about it. Watch the language. Watch the dirty jokes. Watch the sexual slurs. Watch the racial innuendos. Watch the condescending speech. But instead, God's Word says, let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we might know how to answer every man. Oh, the Bible warns continually about this pervasive and pathological problem because sometimes our mouth gets us in trouble and we lose our witness. Man, I think about my own life. From about that time I was 15 years old to I was 18 years old, I, I spent way too much time in a pool hall. Leo's Snooker Parlor, matter of fact, Nate, Oklahoma. It, It was boys only. They didn't let girls in there, and there didn't need to be any girls in there, can I tell you? But as you would expect, the language in a pool hall is is not good. It's ugly. I really hadn't been exposed to much foul language until I hung out at the pool hall a few years. But I heard every imaginable thing that no man should listen to. But more than that, that I not only hear it, you hang around it long enough, it influences the way you begin to speak. And I'm ashamed of the things I'm sure I said and the adjectives I used. But here's where I'm going with this thing. Let me tell you, when I got my life right with God as a young adult, I haven't had a bit of problem of of, of using those kind of words and that kind of language. In all transparency today, though, if I miss a four-foot putt, some of those words get back in my head. <laughs> I, I, 
I don't let them come out my mouth, though, you know. <laughs> Trying to do the best I can with that self-control. Hey, listen, we got to show some self-control, and we got to guard our language. And then he moves quickly to sexual purity. You know, uh, it's only right that we camp here for a moment. We live in a day and time when there is such a pervasive problem, a pandemic problem of sexual immorality in our country. Sexual sin, I'm telling you, it is on the news every night. Someone has rightfully deemed the unholy trinity as money, power, and sex. And it seems to be spot on. The word that's fornication that was in uh, the New King James that we read from just a moment ago, probably in your translation, is sexual immorality. It's a Greek word, pornea. You're familiar with that word. It's where we get the English word pornography. It's really relative to anything that's sexual sin. Everything from immoral thoughts, passions, every form of sexual deviation and perversion. And I'm simply telling you, when a man goes down this pathway of sexual obsession, it will wreck his family, it will wreck his life, and it will wreck his future. And as we've seen each and every day, when someone gets caught in some kind of sexual sin, there is this shame and humiliation that is often too much to bear. It was last year, as you remember, NBC Today Show host Matt Lauer was fired from his position because of sexual sin. And that sexual sin cost that guy $25 million a year job and the shame of losing his integrity and credibility. He gave up his right as a journalist and he flushed down the toilet of sexual, with that sexual harassment and sexual integrity, he flushed it down the toilet and now bears the shame for it. I tell you, this last week, we've all listened with interest in what has gone on with this Jeffrey Epstein thing, the unveiling of his life. But can I tell you, we get a, we get a snapshot into the end game of someone whose life is lived with sexual obsession, sexual sin, sexual trafficking. What did he do? Well, he tried to kill himself a couple of times and he finally succeeded because that is where it eventually leads us. It leads to death. Here in verse 1 in chapter 5, we have a transition then from all of these expectations to how you and I universally can make this application in our life. I'm calling it our imitation, Roman numeral 3. Therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as dear children. So walk in love as he's loved us. And then live our lives as a sacrifice to God, which will be a, a sweet-smelling aroma unto him. That word that's, uh, that's translated imitation there is mimetes in the Greek. It literally means to mimic. In other words, we're to mimic God. We're to, we're to be godly and we're to mimic what God, who he is and, and, and his character. And you and I, indeed, can have the integrity if we will mimic God. We pick up his attributes. 
If we surrender our carnal heart, our greed, our selfishness, our immoral being to him and live empowered by the Spirit, we can live our life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it'll be personified in love. That's what he's saying here. So here's the challenge. Really, here's the challenge for all of us on a daily basis. Will the love of God and the deliverance from sin and his redemption, will it be compelling enough for us to live our life in moral purity? The giving of ourselves to live honestly, of being trustworthy, of being dependable, and to be kind one to another? Sure it can. It begins in your private life. Listen, you can fool people a long time, but you can't fool God any of the time. And until you get your heart right with him, and then you begin to guard your heart with all diligence. Will your life ever be any different? Yes, it spills over into your personal life. Oh, let your family be the ones who, who declare that you are a person of integrity. I love what the psalmist said. He said, I will walk in integrity in my home. I tell you, that's a hard place to walk in integrity to be this kind of person. But you and I can do this because God has given us his grace to enable us to do it. So today, people of God, let's, let, let, let's heed the warning. Let's abhor what is evil. Let's cling to that which is good. Let's not be people of offense. As the text says, let not these things be named once among you as become a saints. Let's be unique. And we will be unique. We will be set apart if we will live in integrity. Would you bow your heads with me today? So we ask the Lord's help to help us to live a life worthy of a calling on our life. Father, this is your time together as we approach your throne, pray and intercede for those that are here and for our own need, that you would show yourself sufficient that you would give us the enablement, which must start with the desire. And Lord, give us a fresh desire in our heart to live as we ought. And Lord, let that desire move us to, to be men and women of discipline, to be found faithful. We realize as your stewards, we're to be found faithful in all regards. Help us to be people of integrity. I pray for those who've come today and maybe they've messed their life up by bad choices in the past. And they've thrown a lot of their life away. And they feel a little desperate even hearing a message on what's expected and how far they've missed the mark. But thank you where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And I pray, Lord, they'd call upon you afresh and you'd delight, as you promised, to restore them and bring them back to where they need to be spiritually. Thank you that you've declared that if we confess our sins, you'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That you'll take our sins and bear them in the depths of the sea and remember them no more. So we thank you for the promise of the forgiveness that's ours in Jesus Christ. But Lord, help us to walk in newness of life. 
Help us to delight in being honest people. Help our word to be good. Help us to be people who tell the truth and delight in being honest. Help us to be men and women who guard our hearts against the sexual culture that we live in and and all that's out there that can hook us and draw us away. God, seal us from those things. Protect us, Holy Spirit of God. And now as we sing a hymn of invitation, if there's any who need prayer today or maybe even bearing a burden that they brought with on this day, maybe a physical concern, maybe a spiritual need, maybe for a family member, whatever it is, Lord, I pray they'd have the freedom to come and we could bear that burden with them and we could pray for them and stand in the gap on their behalf. So, Lord, this is your time. We've sought to speak the truth of your word. I pray that it would find some good soil today in the hearts of those who've heard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together. David's going to lead us in this invitation hymn. If you'd like to make a decision in a public way, if you'd like to be prayed for, if you'd like to trust Christ with your life, if you'd like to make a recommitment of Christ to your life, wouldn't that be a wonderful day to do that? It's always the right time to go for God. You come right now while we sing. God calls. Come quickly. Come now.